You're listening to another episode of the Zag. Eric Christophe here. Excited to be joined by one of the OGs from NLCLA. Dante Atkins is here. We'll hear some stories about how the chapter took off, and he's also one of my favorite Twitter followers, so I'm excited to hear what his takes are on all things politically happening in the country today. So let's get to it. All right, Dante, how would you describe your, your Twitter philosophy? How do you approach using that platform? Um, the way I generally approach using the platform is to uh, engage, have conversations with people, and um, have an unvarnished opinion, but generally don't be a jackass. Uh, there's a fine line there between being passionate and being a jackass that you don't want to cross. Um, and if you have interesting opinions and you're not just purely dogmatic behind one side of one issue or the other side of one issue, especially as we're in the middle of a primary debate right now, for instance, uh, then that's generally the way to do it. Um, as long as you keep your feed interesting and you're not just like always just doing one thing all the time, then you're going to have an interesting mix of followers. You're going to have an interesting conversation on there. So that's what I try to do. And is it fair to say you are most interested in making sure the progressives stay out of the center and are not necessarily backing centrist ideas or centrist candidates? Is, is that a fair way to describe where your thinking is politically right now? A lot of it is that, but it's not so much as making of making sure that progressives don't fall into the center as it is defending progressives from the center. Mm-hmm. That's really where I'm at. I mean, obviously, uh, with the way that uh, the Republican Party is and the disgusting racism, xenophobia, uh, anti-immigrant, tyrannical, proto-fascist uh, tendencies that we've got among the right wing – uh, the question, I mean, there's no question that's what we've got going on right now. So the, the, the real question is how you respond to that, right? And my belief has always been that you respond to that by actually get, by actually talking about policies that help as many people as possible. Um, but there's a way to do that and a way you win politically. Um, so for me, the engagement strategy is a lot is, is not just making sure that you do progressive policy, but also making sure that the way you campaign uh, is correct um, and that you don't operate like sort of the thing that I was talking about with your Twitter, with Twitter feeds, for instance, about being a jackass. Like, just try to make sure that you don't do that. You really have to sell progressive policies in a very good way. Right. And that requires an inside outside strategy and how you approach it. So that's really what I'm at, where I'm at right now politically is, yeah, okay, so these guys are fascists, right? So you gotta make sure that you don't respond to fascism using centrist ideas because that's sort of, that doesn't do enough for people and that's sort of what fascism takes advantage of. But we need, you know, this type of bold progressive populism, but you've gotta sell that to both the middle and the right. So that's sort of uh, my philosophical take on those issues. I feel like I've seen you, too, wrestle with this idea of folks thinking 2020 election will be about kitchen table issues and policy issues versus this is actually a moral election and we should call people to their moral values and to act on those. Is that fair to say that you're trying to figure out the balance of those or are you actually skewed one way more than the other way? I mean, I don't think there's as much of a contrast between those two. I don't think this is a question of do we talk about the economy or do we talk about kids in cages? Um, I think that part of what it means to be a progressive is to put all of these things in terms of one unified moral vision, right? And that unified moral vision is not just, oh, do we talk about, you know, workers in, you know, the white working class in the Midwest, or do we talk about racial justice? The unified moral vision of progressivism is one that 
combines all of these issues into one systemic philosophy about opportunity versus the uh, versus the power structures that currently exist. And it doesn't matter whether those power structures that currently exist are domination uh, by the 1% financially or whether that's white supremacy uh, or whether that is um, misogyny or racism or whatever, what, what have you. The question is deconstructing power structures that oppress and lifting up the marginalized, no matter what that is, no matter what type of oppression and marginalization you're trying to focus on, that's the question that we have right now. And so that's a very intersectional question, right? Because, for instance, the white working class are definitely oppressed in a certain way, not in the ways intersectionally that, say, trans people are oppressed or black women are oppressed or all of these other issues. But you have to take a look intersectionally at power structures, forms of oppression, and making sure that power structures that cause oppression are dismantled. And that's what the left agenda is really about. All of these things have to unite behind one moral vision. You know, we were always really fortunate to have you sometimes alone, sometimes with your brother coming to NLC Institute and talk about messaging. If we brought you in for Institute in 2020, and let's say we gave you a case study on why AOC has been so popular from a messaging standpoint. Like, what what do you see her doing from a technically messaging standpoint that you feel like has really worked for her? Pure authenticity. And what I mean by authenticity is, you know, and for better or for worse, Trump has this authentic thing too. It's like one of the things that I can that I really try to emphasize when I'm talking to uh, candidates or uh, other people about how you communicate in such a way that you get people to notice is try writing like people speak. If you take a look at what AOC does with her Twitter feed or with her speeches or so much of the other ways that she communicates, she's actually writing the way people talk. And so that allows people to that allows people to understand, hey, this is someone who I could actually get along with, who I can engage with, who understands me, who speaks my language as a young person or, you know, as uh, in her case, you know, she would be a lot more easily uh, relatable to women of color, for instance. Right. And so she speaks with those intonations. She speaks like a normal person would. It's like it's very easy to tell as, as someone who worked in Congress and communications for a few years. Right. It's very easy to tell when someone is writing a press release using the typically polished language, right, that always seems to say the same thing about how we all need to work together to solve problems. And regardless of whether or not that may be true, it, it's always the same politician speak. And that's what you want to try to get away from. There's one thing that Trump doesn't do, and that's politician speak. And there's also one thing that AOC doesn't do, and that's politician speak. Now, Trump's politician speak, non-politician speak is a bunch of crazy, racist, misogynist, I, I don't know what, drug-fueled, you know, TV binge-watching. And AOC's is actually moral and competent and clear, right? But neither of them speak like politicians. And if there's one thing that unites them, that would be it. So when you look at prospective candidates, I'm sure there's folks who are considering running for office who, who talk to you. Like, what kind of cues do you hear? What kind of flags go off as you're almost you yourself are interviewing this person as a potential candidate, but maybe as someone even you'd want to work for? Like, how do you even kind of hone in on someone being authentic or not? Um, I want to make sure that they have a vision and I want to make sure that they're able to clearly articulate that vision. Now, it doesn't have to be polished, 
but because the polishing can come with work and training, right? But what there needs to be is a vision for what you want to do, a reason why you're running first and foremost, and then a passion to be able to get that done. So that's really what I look for. If you're if you're just running because you feel like it's the next step along a career to be able to have a resume and obtain some sort of power because it's a step under the next office, and you can't clearly articulate what the change is that you want to make in your community, then that makes me less likely to want to help you out because my thing is, oh, this is great. Like I'm a progressive change maker. Uh, I want to help other people who are progressive change makers. You've got things you want to do. You see injustices in your community. You want to run for office to fix them. And then I can help you sell that to the people who need to elect you to be able to make that change. So that's really what I'm looking for. Um, Authenticity is a question of taking who you are, whoever that happens to be, and translating it to the written spoken word. It doesn't mean changing who you are to be able to shape pre-existing narratives of what's acceptable. And so that's really the difference between like what we call politician speak and what we call an authentic voice, because not everyone's going to communicate the same way. But what the way you should communicate should be a reflection of who you actually are and not you being turned into what we typically view as acceptable in the course of political discourse. Yeah, that makes sense. Listen, when we come back, we'll talk about the early days of NLC and what Dante remembers about starting our chapter here, which is almost 10 years old. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Zag. We'll be right back. Yeah, so it's been almost 10 years since the chapter started. What do you remember about getting pulled into the the founding group that got this thing off the ground? Oh, I, you know, I don't remember who in, who uh, recommended that Jyot Bawa talk to me. But someone, and uh, maybe it was Becca Doton. I don't remember who. I'm still, I'm still struggling with this. Um, like I was trying to rack my brain and figure out who did this. Recommended that Joe uh, come and talk to me um, because I was, you know, a young upstart in the California Democratic Party and LA County, and dealing with all these messaging things and whatnot. Um, and uh, there was a recommendation f- f- to Joe to, you know, recruit me to join the board. Um, and I had no idea what NLC was at that point. I had never really heard of it. Um, but we met at a coffee shop, uh, the Starbucks, uh, if you call that a coffee shop, um, uh, at uh, Wilshire and Alvarado, like downtown adjacent. And he explained to me what he wanted to do and what NLC was. And I was just all about it because I felt like that's the type of thing that we needed more of um, in L.A. politics. I mean, at that point, uh, I was on the board of the L.A. County Young Democrats. And we had a lot of people um, on that board who were really, I guess you could call them institutional types, kind of like most of the people, you know, I was a progressive activist. Most of the people I served on that board with um, worked for elected officials. Um, And so we didn't have a lot of uh, a lot of variety in terms of, uh, I would say, viewpoints or experiences. We weren't really connected to as a democratic club and a young democratic club, we weren't really widely connected to more diverse communities or a different set of experiences from people who got involved in issues a different way. Uh, and that's why NLC was super exciting to me because it gave me the opportunity to be a part of something that was going to bring together all sorts of different walks of life in the local com- uh, you know, advocacy community, not just political people, but nonprofit people and people who want to do business ventures, things like that, and really get a chance to grow the future of 
the people who were doing advocacy in Los Angeles. So I just jumped at the chance. Uh, and I was glad to that whoever referred Joe to me, who I no longer remember who did that, uh, did that because NLC was a very, very rewarding experience for me for the number of years I was involved. And then is there anything surprise you about what either the LA chapter has become or even the national chapter or the national org rather, because there's 50 plus chapters now is like, what surprises you 10 years later about how things turned out with the actual program? You know, whenever you start something, um, you're always concerned about whether it's going to last, right? Uh, and so, you know, what Jot was able to do in the legacy, he was able to leave. Um, and then the people who have subsequently come after, including your work, um, what you guys have done is been able to take what Jote started and build it into something that is self-sustaining and institutional. And I'm actually kind of amazed at how many chapters have sprung up in all sorts of places, because I think, you know, there's there was like now a, there was always there was a San Francisco chapter before, I think. And that's an interesting story there. But then there was like there was then like when I was involved, then there was a Sacramento chapter that started up. And then there are like chapters in Louisiana and I think chapters in Kentucky and now all over the Midwest. And I was like, wow, like there is an entire actual network and a thirst for this sort of thing. Um, and I've just like really as I've been watching it from a distance now. I've just been amazed at like, how quickly it's grown. And so I'm proud that there's a strong legacy that the people who are still doing NLCLA are carrying on uh, 10 years later, but also at how that model has sort of expanded across the nation to be able to bring together young progressive people from all different walks of life, bring them into a room, foster connections and train them in and teach them how to do what they want to do. And I was very excited to be a part of that for the years that I was. Yeah. Hey, last thing, in the next year and a half, give folks some some tips on what they should look for in the in the political scene, either races that they might not be following right now or people they haven't heard of but will be super important in the next 18 months. What, what kind of things should people keep an eye out for? The first thing that I think people should keep an eye out for, um, and obviously it's not too close to home from people for NLCLA, but the major thing to watch out for right now is um, the Virginia House of Delegates and state Senate races, uh, because right now those are Republican held. We have, you know, Democratic governor uh, in Virginia, um, for better, or for worse, given the blackface thing, whatever. Um, but uh, there's very narrow control by Republicans of both the state house uh, or sorry, the state Senate and the House of Delegates, they call it. And. If we flip those, the elections are in odd years, so people don't really pay attention to them too much. But if we flip that, then we control the entire redistricting process in the state of Virginia. And that'll be big. That'll be big to get to net a couple of congressional seats um, in the uh, for the upcoming redistricting cycle. Uh, so that's going to be the first focus. Um, for California people, what I would say right now, because like there's such a supermajority in California, um, I would say to really pay attention to flipping the Arizona Senate race in 2020. Uh, I think Arizona is going to be, you know, we haven't had Arizona be a swing state for a little while. Like Arizona, we thought uh, would be a swing state uh, back in the John Kerry race way back in 2004. And since then, we haven't really paid attention to Arizona um, at a nationwide level. It's always been trending away from us. Uh, we're fixing that now. We just won the Senate seat this past cycle. We have a chance to beat McSally again and actually flip Arizona at the presidential level. And I think I'm confident enough in winning Nevada that I would really wonder if maybe all the California activists who are looking to make a difference in a swing state might start thinking about going to Phoenix and Tucson instead. 
Nice. Well, listen, thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing these thoughts. And of course, thanks for all your help getting NLC off the ground. And thanks everyone for listening to this episode of The Zag. You can catch all past episodes and all the places you get podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher. They're all there. Over 140 plus episodes of awesome progressives doing amazing things. So check them out. And until next time, we'll catch you soon. <laughs>